Hello, and welcome to another edition of On the Road with the Legal Talk Network. This is Patrick Pallas, and I'm the host for this episode, which is being recorded from the National Conference of Bar Presidents 2021 Virtual Annual Meeting. As many of you may know, the national network of the National Conference of Bar Presidents brings together current and past leaders of state, metropolitan, and affinity bar associations to share ideas about how to address critical issues facing the legal profession. Joining me today, I have Chief Justice Bridget Mary McCormick. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Before we get started, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, sure. Um, I am, as you said, currently the Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. I was elected to the court in 2012 um, and reelected in 2020, and I was named the Chief Justice by my colleagues. That's how we do it on the Michigan Supreme Court um, in 2019. So I'm in my second term as chief. Um, before I was elected to the Michigan Supreme Court, I was on the faculty at the University of Michigan Law School, um, and I and I, I I was a law teacher for about 15 years. Um, and way back before that, my first job was um, as a public defender in New York City. So uh, I've had, you know, basically three very different uh, law careers, all of them awesome. You know, we're going to talk a little bit today about this trend that's occurring for re-regulation and legal innovation. Uh, but I noticed in your background that one of the things that popped out was that you had either started or grown nine different clinics um, at the University of Michigan Law School. And, and, and they're, they're really interesting clinics. So one that caught my attention was the Entrepreneurship Clinic and the Innocence Clinic. And, and I'm wondering if those two, among others, maybe is, uh, says something about your drive and ad, uh, of advocacy to widen the scope of legal services. Well, that's a really good question. And I, I have to say, I'm not sure I have made the connection in my own brain, but sometimes you need somebody outside of your own brain to make those connections for you. It, it is the case that um, I taught primarily in the clinics and I was the associate dean for clinical affairs at the University of Michigan Law School at, at a really like lucky time because um, the law school had a, a few longstanding clinics, but it, it was... Um, it was ready to grow its clinical programs. And so I was able to lead that effort um, and add all kinds of, I think, uh, fantastic clinical programs. And what makes a fantastic clinical program is not only the experience a student will have, and it obviously that's critical, but it to me was whether we could um, fill a gap in the marketplace, right? If there was um, some kind of um, legal problem, some set of cases uh, for which the either neither the public nor the private bar were, were covering it, that was a perfect new place for a clinic. So the entrepreneurship clinic was one of the last ones we we I was able to launch and um, there, you know, Ann Arbor, believe it or not, is a is, there's a lot of interesting, you know, startup activity happening, not just on, on campus, but in in the in the local community. And so and there's and there's a lot of need for legal services among those um, those small startups and they don't yet have money. They might one day, but they don't they don't yet. And it's a perfect match. Right. We have these really smart law students. We also have these really smart business students up the street and we could work together to 
create a clinical program that would meet those legal needs that were otherwise being unmet. The, the Innocence Clinic too, and you asked the question, so I'm sorry for my long answer, but um, what you're right, it was designed to fill a, a gap in the marketplace. So there was a DNA Innocence Clinic in Michigan at the Cooley Law School, and they were doing DNA exoneration cases. But there was nobody doing non-DNA cases. And as you know, anybody can, can imagine, the, the kinds of things that go wrong in a case where there is biological evidence also go wrong in cases where there's no biological evidence. And yet the folks who um, might have been wrongfully convicted in a case where there's no blood or DNA and there's no you know, biological evidence to test had no help. Um, and we thought, ah, that's a perfect problem for University of Michigan law students. They're really smart. You can't tell them no yet. You know, they still think like you can do anything. I mean, um, and uh, it was the first non-DNA innocence project in the country. And I think they have to date um, exonerated 23 people. So a big a big success as well. But yes, that was what that was always what I was looking for in new clinical programs. What what does the public need? I think we as lawyers always hear the term access to justice and become very used to that term. And I wonder if if maybe uh, its purpose has been lost with those coined words. And someone like you who has developed uh, nine niches and nine clinics for a law school, um, helping people that lawyers weren't helping maybe helped you better see in real time with real people what that, you know, that blanket access to justice thing really looks like. And, and I'm wondering how maybe that's developed your mission and your drive as, as chief justice. It's definitely relevant. I mean, I always, you know, I've rep, well, I don't represent clients anymore, of course, I'm, a, I'm, I'm now a judge, but when I was a lawyer and a law professor representing clients in our clinical programs, I used to say I, 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 there, there, there wasn't much in common across the different kinds of cases I did. You know, you wouldn't. You, you, I, I was basically willing to try everything and figure it out with smart law students. The only thing that all of my clients ever had in common across twenty some years of practice was none of them ever paid me, and none of them ever could have paid me. You know, that was the only. <laughs> right. That's the right. only common thread across across my practice. Um, and uh, and so yeah, in representing those individuals um, and their community, the people in their communities. I definitely saw all the places where people felt like uh, while on the one hand, the law impacted them in so many ways, they were also excluded from accessing what, what we hope everyone has access to in this country. So, you know, there's such big changes going on across uh, this country and um, you know, for those of you that are listening, that are paying, you know, some attention uh, or maybe paying a lot of attention, at least I hope. Uh, let me just give this overview and then, uh, Chief, if we can talk about this a minute. So to date, there are 10 American jurisdictions, 10 uh, states or bars, and there's three Canadian provinces. And then there's the American Bar Association and Conference of Chief Justices, which you are part of. Uh, Chief Justice, that have all taken significant steps towards uh, legal innovation. Um, and either they've taken steps towards encouraging legal regulation reform, or they've launched task forces to examine reform, or like in the case of Arizona and Utah, now perhaps Florida, are actually implementing regulatory change. And, and these changes are getting a lot of press. And I highlighted this, uh, Chief, when we talked uh, in front of the conference that there's 
You know, Jordan Furlong this week came out with a 44,000 word uh, blog about all the changes going on. The GP Solo Magazine, part of, you know, the, the general practitioner section of the bar is putting out an entire edition called Re-Regulation in the Law that includes a couple of Supreme Court chief, justice, chief justices, uh, legal ethics professor, CEOs of Technology and Legal Services Corporation, ABA leaders like our immediate past president and the chair of the Center for Innovation, all talking about, you know, the possibilities and, and how we manage this idea of legal innovation and, and re-regulation. And you're sitting, in many ways, front and center uh, in that as both a chief and also part of the uh, Conference of Chiefs Justices. Um, can I ask you a really basic question about all these moving parts happening? How important is it, or how, how likely do you think that these kind of changes going on uh, are going to move the needle to help bridge this gap? How important is this moment for us? I honestly think this is um, the moment with the most potential um, of my entire legal career, and I don't think I'll see another one um, like it. And it's a combination of, in my view, all of these things kind of happening together. I mean, a, a number of them, as you know, Patrick, were percolating before we had a global pandemic, right? There were uh, re-regulation um, steps being taken in a number of jurisdictions. There was um, legal tech um, making a difference in um, online dispute resolution and in some other creative and innovative ways to get to to bridge some of our our gaps. And as I'm sure I'm sure has been true for you, my entire career we've been talking about the access to justice crisis, right? And and you know we bar associations care about it and courts care about it, and and yet it feels like we only um, nibble around the edges of the problem because. When I got out of law school, eight out of 10 people with a civil legal problem didn't have access to a lawyer, and that's still true today. It hasn't really changed dramatically. Um, and now, all of a sudden, with these things already percolating before we had a global pandemic that forced us to innovate, which is a great thing because it taught us that we could. Um, you know, we, 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 maybe we were um, tied with education for the, the, the industry that has resisted change more than any other industry in the world, right? We were really good at it. We could resist change like a boss. You know, we just, um, we have normative reasons for doing so. We have cultural reasons for doing so. We have legal reasons for doing so. And it was, it was successful for a long time. And then the dam broke because all of a sudden we had to figure out how to make sure people could access justice in a global pandemic and keep them safe. And that meant we had to all of a sudden innovate. So we have now learned a whole lot of new skills. Um, we've learned how to collaborate. We've learned how to rely on um, other stakeholders to work together to solve problems. And we had all these other things sort of happening already. Add to that, the most robust conversation about race and our justice system in my career as a lawyer, um, national conversation, I mean, ground up conversation. I mean, there are groups in communities demanding transparent data from our courts in Michigan. And I, and I am here for it, I gotta tell you, because having the public drive some of this is an important part of why I think we're at a crossroads where we might make real progress on so many of um, the things that drive our access to justice crisis. I really think it's a, it's, it's a really unique moment in history. Um, and I, I am 
optimistic that we can take everything we've learned um, and take all of the energy that's um, happening in all these different places in and make some real change, lasting change. Jack Newton, as you know, the CEO of, of uh, Clio, has said over and over again that he thinks the profession has advanced 10 years in the last year since, since COVID started. And um, I look at people like uh, Scott Schlegel, you know, the judge down in Louisiana who's transformed uh, his uh, whole court uh, to be virtual and to be faster and to be efficient and to keep people from having to come into courts. And you, you see this happening over and over. You gave a brilliant presentation showing uh, all of the ways that um, our courts are working better and collecting data to know how to do their jobs uh, better. The world is changing uh, dramatically. And I think most would say we're not going to return back to what we thought was normal. This is the, the new normal. So what kind of things um, do we as, as solo and small practitioners um, need to embrace? What advice do you have for those of us who are practicing to get ready for this new era and this new changes that are coming? Well, I think that I said this during the the, the presentation. I, I I don't feel like we will um, be successful unless we do it together. So whether you're a solo practitioner or you're in a small firm or you're in a big firm, we need to all together, um, or you're a court leader or a court administrator, court administrators are so important right now, um, we need to all together figure out how we're going to make sure we take advantage of everything we learned um, and move in the right direction. I mean, every solo practitioner, every small firm, every big firm um, has a seat at the table in lots of the organizations that have a voice in what we're, what we're going to do next, right? What we're going to do tomorrow. Right now in Michigan, we had um, a, a committee of judges that put together um, with public input a lessons learned report about everything we learned in the last year and a half. Um, and the court entered an interim order making a lot of the emergency procedures now part of our rules, not saying that they will stay exactly as they are. They might, they might move in one direction or the other, or some might and others might not. But while we continue to take input from the public, we wanted to make sure we continued um, all of the progress that we made as a result of an emergency, right? I need to hear from every solo practitioner in my state. I want to hear from them about their what their clients have experienced. I know, I know anecdotally from many lawyers I've talked to that who can now appear in Detroit at nine at nine a.m. in Traverse City, Michigan, four hours by car at 10 a.m. Um, and can uh, actually take part in pro bono cases in in jurisdictions far away because they can zoom into a hearing and do the, and do the part that uh, we really need a lawyer to help with. Um, uh, they have a lot of positive things to say about it, which isn't to say that we can't continue to, to iterate and, and improve. Of course we can and we should. That's what we just learned. We can and we can, but we need to hear from you. I mean, if you're in Michigan right now, especially we need to hear from you. There are some who would like to go back to the way things used to be. Um, so we need to hear from um, all of the members of the bar and their clients um, and other community leaders about why um, change is important. Chief, let me talk to you a little bit about the idea of, of legal sandboxes that are, you know, it's happening in, in Utah, being discussed now in Washington, um, California, uh, and other states. Um, and one of the concerns that lawyers have are that you let in some other legal entity and take lawyer business away. And I want to reflect a minute. When I was president of the Washington State Bar, 
um, we implemented triple LTs. And we heard the same argument that triple LTs are going to take away the business of lawyers. It's going to hurt lawyers. Never mind that it's good for the public. It's going to hurt lawyers. And so when triple LTs came into place, one of the funny things that happened was that lawyers started hiring them because they realized it was good business for lawyers to have an independently licensed paralegal able to do business and they could be hired and make money for law firms. And lawyers realized uh, triple LTs are good for us. This is a good, this is a good thing. I, I'm wondering, as you look at legal sandboxes and talk with your constituents, both uh, members of the public and lawyers who come to you, and they ask you, about sandboxes and say, is it really a good idea to let non-lawyers come into the practice of law? Isn't that going to hurt the public? Isn't that going to hurt lawyers? How do you respond to that that kind of that kind of question? Well, I think there are a number of important responses, and one is, you know, lawyers are not enough. We know we're not enough. I mean, we're, we are we are not going to meet the needs of the eight out of ten people who go with those needs unmet. Um, right now. And, and, and that should matter to all of us because equal access to justice is really kind of foundational to the rule of law. And if, if eight out of 10 of your neighbors think that the legal system is not a place where they can get fair treatment and they know they can't, that kind of undermines our whole business model. Um, so figuring out new solutions, I mean, really different solutions has to be what we're, what we're talking about and thinking about. And I, you know, we have um, lots of areas where we know um, people have to manage courts um, without lawyers and the eviction dockets, for example, until the eviction diversion programs that we have American Rescue Act funding for people, tenants 96% of the time on the Detroit eviction docket are, are, are managing managing that without a lawyer, um, maybe just not showing up or if they're showing up, um, doing the best they can and um, we know how that we know how that goes. Um, so if we care about uh, the rule of law, in my view, we have to care about looking at new ways to meet legal needs. And sandboxes is a careful way to do it and collect data and see what works and make sure people are not hurt in the meantime. And I think we should be thinking about other ways as well. So. So I got room or time rather for, for one more question. And, and let me ask you this. Uh, they say that the best way to predict the future is to create it. I, I love that quote and I use that in, in my own practice. But tell me what you see happening uh, with our profession and, and who you think the drivers are. It's a great question. I'm, you know, I am part of the uh, National Center for State Courts has this Just Horizons Council, which is um, bar leaders, uh, a few chiefs, the, you know, Nathan Hecht from Texas and Jeff Bivens from Tennessee and myself, um, and then some trial court judges and other stakeholders. Um, and we've been meeting for a year already, and we're continuing to meet for at least another six months, probably another year to try and answer the question you just asked me to answer in what I think is about 30 seconds. Um, I think courts are at a crossroads. I think justice is at a crossroads. I, I, I think that we have to figure out how to make sure courts um, can be more of a service than a place, how courts can be a um, solution for people, a place where people can heal. In, in my view, it's, it's the biggest project we're facing. And I think we're seeing leaders stepping up from some not surprising places, bar leaders, uh, chief justices, justices, 
lawyers and absolutely um, there are there are leaders among the bar and uh, members of the community. Um, I you know I just went through an election last year and I will tell you that some of the people who cared the most about this election were not lawyers. They were members of communities that felt like uh, they weren't getting a fair shake in courts um, and they wanted to know what we thought about it as candidates. And I was happy to see them asking those questions. Thank you. Well, we've reached the end of the road for this episode, and I want to thank very much Chief Justice McCormick for joining us today. And thank you listeners for tuning in. Please visit ncbp.org to find out more about the National Conference of Bar Presidents. And if you like what you heard, please rate us and leave us a review in your favorite podcasting app. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with the Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.